Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm Tyler, the narrator, and uh, we'll be continuing to read The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Chapter 41. Friend's Blood. The next morning I woke early, washed up, and grabbed a bite to eat at the mess. Then, because I had nothing to do before my whipping at noon, I strolled to the university aimlessly. I wandered through a few apothecaries and bottle shops, admired the well-kept lawns and gardens. Eventually, I came to rest on a stone bench in a wide courtyard. Too anxious to think of doing anything productive, I simply sat and enjoyed the weather, watching the wind tumble a few scraps, uh, scraps of waste paper along the cobblestones. It wasn't too long before Willem strolled over and sat himself next to me without an invitation. His characteristic sealedish dark hair and eyes made him seem older than Simon and me, but he still had the slightly awkward look of a boy who wasn't quite used to being man-sized yet. Nervous? he asked, with the harsh burr a Siaru accent makes, trying not to think about it, actually. Willem grunted. We were both quiet for a minute while he watched the students walk past. A few of them paused in their conversations to point at me. I quickly grew tired of their attention. Are you doing anything right now? Sitting, he said simply. Breathing. <clears throat> Sorry, probably. Sitting, he said simply. Breathing. Clever. I can see why you're in the Arcanum. Are you busy for the next hour or so? He shrugged and looked at me expectantly. Would you show me where Master Arul is? <clears throat> Sorry, it still is just a weird name. Hard to pronounce for me. He told me to stop by... after. Certainly, he said, pointing to one of the courtyard's outlets. Medica is on... Let's see, Medi Medica is on the other side of archives. We made our way around the massive windowless block that is that was the archives. Uh, Willem pointed, that is Medica. It was a large, oddly-shaped building. It looked like a taller, less rambling version of Maine's. Bigger than I'd thought it would be, I mused. All for teaching medicine? He shook his head. They do much business in tending the sick. They never turn anyone away because they can't pay. Really? I looked at Medica again, thinking of Master Arul. That's surprising. You need not pay in advance, he clarified. After you recover, he paused, and I heard the clear implication, if you recover. You settle accounts. If you have no hard coin, you work until your debt is... He paused. What is the word for shayim? He asked, holding out his hands with the palms up and moving them up and down as if they were the pans of a scale. Wade? I suggested. He shook his head. No. Shayem, he stressed the word and brought his hands even with each other. Oh, I mimicked the gesture. Balanced, he nodded. You work until, you are, until your debt is balanced with the Medica. Few leave without settling their debts. I gave a grim chuckle. Not that surprising. What's the point of running away from an arcanist who has a couple drops of your blood? We eventually came to another courtyard, 
in the center of it was a pennant pole with a stone bench underneath it. I didn't need to guess who was going to be tied to it in an hour or so. There were about a hundred students milling around, giving things an oddly festive air. It's not usually this big, Willem said apologetically, but a few masters cancelled classes. Hem, I'm guessing, and Brandier. Willem nodded. Him holds grudges. He paused to give emphasis to his understatement. He'll be there with his whole coterie. He pronounced the last word slowly. Is that the right word? Coterie? I nodded, and Willem looked vaguely self-satisfied. Then he frowned. That makes me remember something strange in your language. People are always asking me about the road to Tunue. Endlessly, they say, how is the road to Tinue? What does that mean? I smiled. It's an idiomatic piece of the language. That means, I know what an idiom is, Willem interrupted. What does this one mean? Oh, I said, slightly embarrassed. It's just a greeting. It's kind of like asking, how is your day? Or, how is everything going? That is also an idiom, Willem grumbled. Your language is thick with nonsense. I wonder how any of you understand each other. How is everything going? Going where? He shook his head. Tenue, apparently, I grinned at him. Tuan Vulcan Oketama, I said, using one of my favorite Siaru idioms. It meant, don't let it make you crazy, but it translated literally as, don't put a spoon in your eye over it. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a that's a clever. Um, I'm just thinking uh, from a writer's perspective. That's a clever um, creation of an idiom. Don't put a spoon in your eye over it. Or maybe I don't know. Patrick Rothfuss might speak many languages, and maybe that's an actual idiom somewhere. Anyway, uh, let's see. We turned away from the courtyard and walked around the university aimlessly for a while. Willem pointed out a few more notable buildings, including several good taverns, uh, the alchemy complex, the sealedish laundry, and both the sanctioned and unsanctioned brothels. We strolled past the featureless stone walls of the archives, uh, past a cooper, a bookbinder, an apothecary. A thought occurred to me. Do you know much herb lore? He shook his hand. Not his hand. He shook his head. Damn. Uh, chemistry, mostly. And I dabble in the archives with puppet sometimes. Dabble, I said, emphasizing the buh sound for him. Dapple is something else. Uh, who's puppet? Willem paused. Hard to describe, he waved a hand to dismiss the question. I'll introduce you later. What do you need to know about herbs? Uh, nothing, really. Do, could you do me a favor? He nodded, and I pointed to the nearby apothecary. Go buy me two scruples of Nalrout. That's N-A-H-L-R-O-U-T. Nalrout. I held up two iron drabs. This should cover it. Why me? He asked warily. Because I don't want the fellow in there giving me the you're awfully young look. I frowned. I don't want to have to deal with that today. I was nearly dancing with anxiety by the time Willem got back. He was busy, he explained, seeing the impatient expression on my face. He handed, he handed me a small paper packet and a loose jingle of change. What is it? 
It's to settle my stomach, I said. Breakfast isn't sitting too well, and I don't fancy throwing up halfway through being whipped. I bought us a cider. Sorry, right. Not a cider. I bought us cider at a nearby pub, using mine to wash down the null root. Trying not to grimace at the bitter chalky taste. Before too long, we heard the belling tower striking noon. I think I must go to class. Will tried to mention it nonchalantly, but it came out almost strangled. He looked up at me, embarrassed and a little pale under his dark complexion. I am not fond of blood. He gave a shaky smile. My blood, friend's blood. I don't plan on doing much bleeding, I said, but don't worry. You've gotten me through the hard part, the waiting. Thank you. We parted ways, and I fought down a wave of guilt. After knowing me less than three days, Will had gone out of his way to help me. He could have taken the easy route, and resented my quick admittance into the Arcanum, as many others did. Instead, he had done a friend's duty, helping me pass a difficult time, and I had repaid him with lies. As I walked toward the pennant pole, I felt the weight of the crowd's eyes on me. How many were there? Two hundred? Three? After a certain point is reached, the numbers cease to matter, and all that remains is the faceless mass of a crowd. My stage training held me firm under their stairs. I walked steadily toward the pennant pole amid a sea of susurrous murmurings. I didn't carry myself proudly, as I knew that might turn them against me. I was not repentant, either. I carried myself well, as my father had taught me, with neither fear nor regret on my face. As I walked, I felt the null root begin to take firm hold of me. I felt perfectly awake while everything around me grew almost painfully bright. Time seemed to slow as I approached the center of the courtyard. As my feet came down on the cobblestones, I watched the small puffs of dust they raised. I felt a breath of wind catch the hem of my cloak and curl underneath to cool the sweat between my shoulder blades. It seemed for a second that, should I wish to, I could count the faces in the crowd around me like flowers in a field. I spotted none of the masters in the crowd except for him. He stood near the pennant pole, looking pig-like in his smugness. He folded his arms in front of himself, letting the sleeves of his black master's robes hang loosely at his sides. He caught my eye, and his mouth corked up into the, a soft smirk that I knew was meant for me. I resolved that I would bite out my own tongue before I gave him the satisfaction of appearing frightened or even concerned. Instead, I gave him a wide, confident smile, then looked away as if he didn't concern me in the least. Then I was at the pennant pole. I heard someone reading something, but the words were a vague buzzing to me as I removed my cloak and laid across the back of a stone bench that sat at the base of the pole. Then I began to unbutton my shirt as casually as if I were preparing to take a bath. A hand on my wrist stopped me. The man had, that had read the announcement gave me a smile that tried to be comforting. You don't need to go shirtless, he said. It'll save you a bit for, uh, of this thing. I'm not going to ruin a perfectly good shirt, I said. He gave me an odd look, then shrugged, and ran a length of rope through an iron ring above our heads. I'll need your hands. I gave him a flat look. You don't need to worry about my running off. It's to keep you from falling over if you pass out. 
I gave him a hard look. If I pass out, you may do whatever you wish, I said firmly. Until then, I will not be tied. Something in my voice gave him pause. He didn't offer me any argument as I climbed onto the stone bench beneath the pole and stretched uh, to reach the iron ring. I gripped it firmly with both hands, smooth and cool. I found it oddly comforting. I focused on it as I lowered myself into the heart of stone. I heard people moving away from the base of the pole. Then the crowd quieted and there was no sound but the soft hiss and crack of the whip being loosened behind me. I was relieved I was to be whipped with a single-headed whip. In Tarbine I had seen the terrible bloody hash a six-tail can make of a man's back. There was a sudden hush. Then, before I could brace myself, there came a sharper crack than the ones before. I felt a line of dim red fire trace down my back. I gritted my teeth, but it wasn't as bad as I had thought it would be. Even with the precautions I had taken, I expected a sharper, fiercer pain. Then the second lash came. Its crack was louder, and I heard it through my body rather than with my ears. I felt an odd looseness across my back. I held my breath, knowing I was torn and bleeding. Everything went red for a moment, and I leaned against the rough, tarred wood of the pennant pole. The third lash came before I was ready for it. It licked up to my left shoulder, then tore nearly all the way down to my left hip. I grit my teeth, refusing to make a sound. I kept my eyes open and watched the world grow black around the edges for a moment, before snapping back into sharp, bright focus. Then, ignoring the burning across my back, I set my feet on the bench and loosened my clenched fingers from the iron ring. A young man jumped forward as if he expected to have to catch me. I gave him a scathing look, and he backed away. I gathered my shirt and cloak, laid them carefully over one arm, and left the courtyard, ignoring the silent crowd around me. 42. Bloodless It could be worse, that much is certain. Master Arwell's round face was serious as he circled me. I was hoping you would simply welt, but I should have known better with your skin. I sat on the edge of a long table deep inside the Medica. Arul prodded my back gently as he chattered on. But as I say, it could be worse. Two cuts, and as cuts go, you couldn't have done better. Clean, shallow, and straight. If you do as I tell you, you'll have nothing but smooth silver scars to show the ladies how brave you are. He stopped in front of me and raised his white eyebrows and un let's see, enthusiastically behind the round rings of his spectacles. Eh? <laughs> or eh? His expression wrung a smile from me. He turned to the young man that stood by the door. Go and fetch the next Rilar on the list. Tell them only that they are to bring what is needful to repair a straight, shallow laceration. The boy turned and left, his feet pattering away in the distance. You will provide excellent practice for one of my Rilar. Arul said cheerfully, your cut is a good straight one with little chance of complication, but there is not much to you. He prodded my chest with a wrinkled finger and made a noise with his tongue against his teeth. Just bones and a little wrapping. It is easier for us if we have more meat to work with. But, he shrugged, bringing his shoulders almost to his ears and back down, things are not always ideal. That is what a young physicer must learn more than anything. 
He looked up at me as if expecting a response. I nodded seriously. It seemed to satisfy him, and his squinting smile returned. He turned and opened a cabinet that stood against one of the walls. Give me just a moment, and I will numb the burning that must be all across your back. He clinked a few bottles together as he rummaged around on the shelves. It's all right, Master Arul, I said stoically. You can stitch me clothes the way I am. I had two scruples of Nullrout numbing me, and I knew better than to mix anesthetics if I could avoid it. He paused with one arm deep into the cabinet, and had to withdraw it to turn to look at me. Have you ever had stitches before, my boy? Yes, I said honestly. Without anything to soften the pain, I nodded again. As I sat on the table, my eyes were slightly higher than his. He looked up at me skeptically. Let me see, then, he said, as if he didn't quite believe me. I pulled my pant leg up over my knee, gritting my teeth as the motion tugged on my back. Eventually I re revealed a handspan worth of scar on my outer thigh above my knee from when Pike had stabbed me with his bottle glass knife back in Tarbine. Arul looked at it closely, holding his glasses with one hand. He gave it one gentle prod with his index finger before straightening. Sloppy, he pronounced with a mild distaste. I had thought it was a rather good job. My cord broke halfway through, I said stiffly. I wasn't working under ideal circumstances. Arul was silent for a while, stroking his upper lip with a finger as he watched me through half-lidded eyes. And do you enjoy this sort of thing? he asked dubiously. I laughed at his expression, but it was cut short when a dull pain blossomed across my back. No, master, I was just taking care of myself as best I could. He continued looking at me, still stroking his lower lip. Show me where the gut broke. I pointed. It isn't the sort of thing that you forget. He gave the old scar a closer examination and prodded it again before looking up. You may be telling me the truth, he shrugged. I do not know, but I would think that if... He trailed off and peered speculatively into my eyes. Reaching up, he pulled one of the lids back. Look up, he said perfunctorily. Frowning at whatever he saw, Arul picked up one of my hands, pressed the tip of my fingernail firmly, and watched intently for a second or two. His frown deepened as he moved closer to me, took hold of my chin with one hand, opened my mouth, and smelled it. Tennyson, he said. He asked, then answered his own question. No, Nalrut, of course. I must be getting old to not notice it sooner. It also explains why you're not bleeding all over my nice clean table. He gave me a serious look. How much? I didn't see any way of denying it. Two scruples. Arul was silent for a while as he looked at me. After a moment, he removed his, his skepticals and rubbed them fiercely against his cuff. Replacing them, he looked straight at... At me. It is no surprise that a boy might fear a whipping enough to drug himself for it. His eyes narrowed. But why, if he was so afraid, would he remove his shirt beforehand? He frowned again. You will explain all of this to me. If you've lied to me, admit it, and all will be well. I know boys tell foolish stories sometimes. His eyes glittered behind the glass of his spectacles. But if you lie to me now, neither I nor any of mine will stitch you. I will not be lied to. He crossed his arms in front of himself. So, explain. I do not understand what is going on here. That, more than anything else, I do not like. 
my last resort then, the truth. My teacher, Abenthe, taught me as much as he could about the physicer's arts, I explained. When I ended up living on the streets of Tarbine, I took care of myself, I gestured to my knee. I didn't wear my shirt today because I only have two shirts, and it has been a long time since I have had as many as that. And the Nalrut? he asked. I sighed. I don't fit in here, sir. I'm younger than everyone, and a lot of people think I don't belong. I upset a lot of students by getting into the Arcanum so quickly, and I've managed to get on the wrong side of Master Hem. All those students, and Hem, and his friends, they're all watching me, waiting for some sign of weakness. I took a deep breath. I took the Nalrote because I didn't want to faint. I needed to let them know they couldn't hurt me. I've learned that the best way to stay safe is to make your enemies think you can't be hurt. It sounded ugly to say it so starkly, but it was the truth. I looked at him defiantly. There was a long silence as Arul looked at me, his eyes narrowing slightly behind his spectacles, as if he were trying to see something inside me. He brushed his upper lip with his finger again before he began slowly to speak. I suppose if I were older, he said, quietly enough to be speaking to himself, I would say that you were being ridiculous, that our students are adults, not squabbling, bickersome boys. He paused again, still stroking his lip absent-mindedly. Then his eyes crinkled upward around the edges as he smiled at me. But I am not so old as that. Hmm, not yet, not by half. Anyone who thinks boys are innocent and sweet has never been a boy himself or has forgotten it. And anyone who thinks men aren't hurtful and cruel at times must not leave his house often and he has certainly never been a physicer. We, we see the effects of cruelty more than any other. Before I could respond, he said, Close your mouth, Helir Kivoth, or I will feel obligated to put some vile tonic in it. Ah, uh, here they come. The last was said to two students entering the room. One was the same assistant who had shown me here. The other was, surprisingly, a young woman. Ah, Rilar Mola. Arul enthused, all signs of our serious discussion passing lightly from his face. You have heard that your patient has two straight clean lacerations. You, uh, What have you brought to remedy the situation? Boiled linen, hook needle, gut, alcohol, and iodine, she said crisply. She had green eyes that stood out in her pale face. What? Arul demanded. No sympathy wax? No, Master Arul, she responded, paling a little at his tone. And why not? She hesitated. Because I don't need it. Arul seemed mollified. Yes, of course you don't. Very good. Stop telling me about this thing. I, I don't... I don't care. Oh, threat detected. Looks at the notification. Zero threats detected. No, you didn't detect any threats. Sorry, my computer was just notifying me that it didn't detect any threats repeatedly, so I don't know why I was doing that. <sighs> Let's see. Um, yes, of course you don't. Very good. Did you wash before you came here? Mola nodded, her short blonde hair bobbing with the motion of her head. Then you have wasted your time and effort, he said sternly. Think of all the germs of disease that you might have gathered in the long walk through the passageway. Wash again and we will begin. She washed with a thorough briskness at a nearby basin. Arul helped me lay face down on the table. Has the patient been numbed? Uh, she asked, 
though I couldn't see her face, I heard a shadow of doubt in her voice. Anesthetized, Arul corrected. You have a good eye for detail, Mola. No, he is not. Now, what would you do if Ilir Kivoth reassured you that he has no need for such things? He claims to have self-control like a bar of Ramston steel, and will not flinch when you stitch him. Arul's tone was serious, but I could detect a hint of amusement hiding underneath. I would tell him that he was being foolish. And if he persisted in his claims that he needed no numbing agent, there was a longer pause from Mola. He doesn't seem to be bleeding much at all, so I would proceed. I would also make it clear to him that if he moved over much, I would tie him to the table and treat him as I saw fit for his well-being. Hmm. Arul seemed a little surprised at her response. Yes, very good. So, Kvoth, do you still wish to forego anesthetic? Thank you, I said politely. I do not need one. Very well, Mola said, as if resigning herself. First, we will clean and sterilize the wound. The alcohol stung, but that was the worst of it. I tried my best to relax as Mola talked her way through the procedure. Arul kept up a steady stream of comments and advice. I occupied my mind with other things, and tried not to twitch at the gnarled, dulled jabs of the needle. She finished quickly and proceeded to bandage me with a quick efficiency I admired. As she helped me to a sitting position and wound linen around me, I wondered if all Arul's students were as well-trained as this one. <laughs> uh, she was making her final knots behind me when I felt a vague featherlight... Sorry. <clears throat> she was making her final knots behind me when I felt a vague feather-like touch on my shoulder, almost insensible through the null route that numbed me. He has lovely skin, I heard her muse, presumably to Arul. Rilar! Arul said severely. Such comments are not professional. I am disappointed by your lack of sense. I was referring to the nature of the scar he can expect to have. She responded scathingly. I imagine it will be little more than a pale line, provided he can avoid tearing open his wound. Hmm. Yes, of course. And how should he avoid that? Mola walked around to stand in front of me. Avoid motions like this, she extended her hands in front of her, or this, she held them high over her head. Avoid quick motions of any kind, running, jumping, climbing. The bandage may come off in two days. Do not get it wet. She looked away from me to Arul. She nodded. Oh, sorry, he nodded. Uh, very good, Rilar. You are dismissed. He looked at the younger boy mutely. No, sorry, I was turning the page. He looked at the younger boy who had watched mutely throughout the procedure. You may go as well, Gary, or Jerry, maybe. Uh, if anyone asks, I will be in my study. Thank you. In a moment, Arul and I were alone again. He stood motionless, one hand covering his mouth as I eased my way carefully into my shirt. Finally, he seemed to reach a decision. Elir Kvoth, would you like to study here at the Medica? Very much so, Master Arul, I said honestly. He nodded to himself, hand still held against his lips. Come back in four days. If you are clever enough to keep from tearing out your stitches, I will have you here. His eyes twinkled. 43. The Flickering Way Remember my comments at the end of last time's last night's episode. <sighs> oh, there's still my door just shut. Anyway, uh, 
this is... Okay, anyway, you'll, you'll see. Uh, buoyed by the stimulant effects of the Nalrut, and feeling very little pain, I made my way to the archives. Since I was now a member of the Arcanum, I was free to explore the stacks, something I'd been waiting my whole life to do. Better still, so long as I didn't ask for any help from the Scribs, nothing would be recorded in the archives' ledger book. That meant I could research the Chandrian and the Amir to my heart's content, and no one, not even Lauren, need know about my childish pursuits. <sighs> Don't do things on your own for the first time. Especially when somebody... Okay, what do I... <sighs> Entering the reddish light of the archives, I found both Ambrose and Fela sitting behind the entry desk. A mixed blessing, if ever there was one. Ambrose was leaning toward her, speaking in a low voice. She had the distinctly uncomfortable look of a woman who knows the futility of a polite refusal. One of his hands rested on her knee, while the other arm was draped across the back of her chair, his hand resting on her neck. He meant for it to look tender and affectionate, but there was a tension in her body that was like that of a startled deer. The truth was, he was holding her there, the same way you hold a dog by the scruff of its neck to keep it from running off. As the door thumped closed behind me, Fella looked up, met my eyes, then looked down and away, ashamed by her predicament, as if she'd done anything. <sighs> I had seen that look too many times on the streets of Tarbine. It sparked an old anger in me. I approached the desk, making more noise than necessary. Pen and ink lay on the other end of the desk, and a piece of paper three-quarters full of rewriting and crossing out. From the looks of things, Ambrose had been trying to compose a poem. I reached the end edge of a desk. Sorry, I reached the edge of the desk and stood for a moment. Fela looked everywhere except me or at Ambrose. She shifted in her seat, uncomfortable, but obviously not wanting to make a scene. I cleared my throat pointedly. Ambrose looked over his shoulder, scowling. You have damnable timing, Elier. Come back later. He turned away, dismissing me. I snorted and leaned over the desk, craning my neck to look at the sheet of paper he'd left lying there. I have damnable timing? Please, you have thirteen syllables in a line here. I tapped a finger onto the page. It's not iambic, either. I don't know if it's anything metrical at all. He turned to look at me again, his expression irritated. Mind your tongue, Elir. The day I come for you to help with poetry is the day is the day that you have two hours to spare. I said two long hours, and that's just for getting started. So, uh, let's see. So same can the humble thrush well know its north. I mean, I don't even know how to begin to criticize that. It practically mocks itself. What do you know of poetry? Ambrose said without bothering to turn around. I know a limping verse when I hear it. I said, but this isn't even limping. A limp has rhythm. This is more like someone falling down a set of stairs, uneven stairs, with a midden at the bottom. It is a sprung rhythm, he said, his voice stiff and offended. I wouldn't expect you to understand. Sprung? I burst out with an incredulous laugh. I understand that if I saw a horse with a leg this badly sprung, I'd kill it out of mercy, then burn its poor corpse for, filler the, for fear the local dogs might gnaw on it and die. Ambrose finally turned to face me, and in doing so he had to take his right hand off Fela's knee. A half-victory, but his other hand remained on her cheek on her neck, holding her in the chair with the appearance of a casual caress. I thought you might stop by today, he said with brittle cheerfulness, so I already checked the ledger. You're not in the lists yet. 
You'll have to stick with the tomes or come back later after they've updated the books. No offense, but would you mind checking again? I'm not sure I can trust the literacy of someone who tries to rhyme north with worth. No wonder you have to hold women down to get them to listen to it. Ambrose stiffened his and his arm slid off the back of the chair to fall at his side. His expression was pure venom. When you're older, Elir, you'll understand that what a man and a woman do together— What? In the privacy of the entrance hall of the archives? I gestured around us. God's body, this isn't some brothel, and in case you hadn't noticed, she's a student, not some brass nail you've paid to bang away at. If you're going to force yourself on a woman, have the decency to do it in an alleyway. At least that way they'll feel justified screaming about it. Ambrose's face flushed furiously at it. Oh, sorry, flushed furiously, and it took him a long moment to find his voice. You don't know the first thing about women. There, at least, we can agree, I said easily. In fact, there's no reason I, that's the reason I came here today. I wanted to do some research, find a book or two on the subject. I struck the ledger with two fingers hard. So look up my name and let me in. Ambrose flipped open the book, found the proper page, and turned the book around to face me. There, if you can find your name on that list, you are welcome to peruse the stacks at your leisure. He gave a tight smile. Otherwise, feel free to come back in a span or so. We should have things updated by then. I had the master send along a note, just in case there was any confusion about my admission to the Arcanum, I said, and drew my shirt up over my head, turning so he could see the broad expanse of bandages covering my back. Can you read it from there, or do I need to come closer? There was a pointed silence from Ambrose. I lowered my shirt and turned to face Fela, uh, ignoring him entirely. My lady Scriv, I said to her with a bow, a very slight bow, as my back wouldn't permit a deep one, would you be so good as to help me locate a book concerning women? I have been instructed by my betters to inform myself on this most subtle subject. Fela gave a faint smile and relaxed a bit. She had continued sitting stiff and uncomfortable after Ambrose had taken his hand away. I guessed that she knew Ambrose's temperament well enough to know that if she bolted away and embarrassed him, he would make her pay for it later. I don't know if we have anything like that. I would settle for a primer, I said with a smile. I have it on good report that I don't know the first thing about them, so anything would further my knowledge. Something with pictures? Ambrose spat. If our search degenerates to that level, I'll be sure to call you, I said, without looking in his direction. I smiled at Fella. Perhaps a bestiary, I said gently. I hear they are singular creatures, much different than men. Fella's smile blossomed, and she gave a small laugh. We could have a look around, I suppose. Ambrose scowled in her direction. She made a placating gesture toward him. Everyone knows he's in the Arcanum, Ambrose. She said, what's the harm of just letting him in? Ambrose glared at her. Why don't you run along to Tomes and play the good fetch-and-carry girl, he said coldly. I can handle things out here by myself. Okay, whatever. Okay, this is going to go badly. Ambrose has just been kicked in every way imaginable except physically. By Kvoth, no less. And now... Okay. Uh, 
waited this long. Just wait another day. Just wait another day, man. <sighs> okay, sorry. Oh my god, I don't care. You did not find any threats. Yes, do a quick scan. Shut up about it. Stop telling me. It's computers, man. Jeez. Yeah. Keep dismissing this thing. It's like it scanned yesterday, okay? And it didn't find any threats. <sighs> it keeps popping up and saying, no threats found. Or actually, no, it's, it keeps saying, threats found. And then I then they scan and it's like, no threats found. It's like, make up your fucking mind, man. Like, are there threats or aren't there? And if there aren't, stop notifying me about it. Like, I don't need to. Yep, no current threats. Look at that. God damn. Anyway, sorry about that. Where where were we? Let's see. Um, moving stiffly, Fela got up from the desk, gathered up the book she'd been trying to read, and headed into tomes. As she pulled the door open, I like to think she gave me a brief look of gratitude and relief, but perhaps it was only my imagination. As the door swung shut behind her, the room seemed to grow a little dimmer. I am not speaking poetically. The light truly seemed to dim. I looked at the sympathy lamps hanging around the room, wondering what was wrong. But a moment later, I felt a slow, burning sensation begin to creep across my back and realized the truth. The Nalrote was wearing off. Most powerful painkillers have serious side effects. Tennyson occasionally produces delirium or fainting. Lycilium is poisonous. Ophelum is highly addictive. Menka is perhaps the most powerful of all, but there are reasons they call it devil root. Nalroot was less powerful than these, but much safer. It was a mild anesthetic, a stimulant, and a vascular constrictor, which is why I hadn't bled like a stuck pig when they'd whipped me. Best of all, it had no major side effects. Still, there was a price to be paid. Once Nalroot wears off, it leaves you physically and mentally exhausted. Regardless, I had come here to see the stacks, I was now a member of the Arcanum, and I didn't intend to leave until I'd been inside the archives. I turned back to the desk, my expression resolute. Ambrose gave me a long, calculating look, before heaving a sigh. Fine, he said, how about a deal? You keep quiet about what you saw here today, and I'll bend the rules and let you in even though you aren't officially in the book. He looked a little nervous. How does that sound? Even as he spoke, I could feel the stimulant effect from the Nalrut fading. My body felt heavy and tired. My thoughts grew sluggish and syrupy. I reached up to rub at my face with my hands and winced as the motion tugged sharply at the stitches all across my back. That'll be fine, I said thickly. Ambrose opened up one of the ledger books and sighed as he turned the pages. Since this is your first time in the archives proper, you'll have to pay the stack fee. My mouth tasted strangely of lemons. That was a side effect Ben had never mentioned. It was distracting, and after a moment I saw that Ambrose was looking up at me expectantly. What? He gave me a strange look. The stack fee. There wasn't any fee before, I said, when I was in the tomes. Ambrose looked up at me as if I were an idiot. That's because it's the stack fee, he looked back down at the ledger. Normally you pay it in addition to your first term's arcanum tuition, but since you've jumped rank on us, you'll need to tend to it now. How much is it? I asked, feeling for my purse. One talent, he said, and you do have to pay before you can go in. Rules are rules. 
After paying for my bunk and muse, a talent was nearly all my remaining money. I was keenly aware of the fact that I needed to hoard my resources to save for next term's tuition. As soon as I couldn't pay, I would have to leave the tuition. I would have to, sorry, goddamn, I'd have to leave the university. Still, it was a small price to pay for something I dreamed about for most of my life. I pulled the talent out of my purse and handed it over. Do I need to sign in? Nothing so formal as that, Ambrose said as he opened the drawer and pulled out a small metal disc. Stupefied from the side effects of the Nile root, it took me a moment to recognize for it for what it was, a handheld sympathy lamp. The stacks aren't lit, Ambrose said matter-of-factly. There's too much space in there. Uh, it would be bad for the books in the long term. Hand lamps cost a talent and a half. I hesitated. A Ambrose nodded to himself and looked thoughtful. A lot of folk end up strapped during first term. He reached down to, uh, into a lower drawer and rooted around for a long moment. Hand lamps are a talent and a half, and there's nothing I can do about that. He brought out a four-inch taper. But candles are just a half penny. Half penny for a candle was a remarkably good deal. I brought out a penny. I'll take two. This is our last one. Ambrose said quickly. He looked around nervously before pushing it into my hand. Tell you what, you can have it for free, he smiled. Just don't tell anyone. It'll be our little secret. Warning bells should be going off like crazy, Kvoth. But you're all stupid from the effects of Nalrut wearing off. Now you're dumb and gullible and fucking stupid. God damn. And you just... Why, why would... Why... Why? You, you should think of Ambrose like you think of Pike. God fucking damn it, he's an idiot. See, okay, see, this this is where Kvothe ought to either just wait, because he's got all terms, so he can stand to wait a couple days and heal up a bit before rushing off like this. He doesn't know how to be patient about this. He needs patience enforced on him by someone else. And then, to make matters worse... He just insulted this guy, and, like, in every way possible, and now he's trusting what he says? The fucking idiocy, but this is where youth gets you into trouble, because the young just don't know better. And, having grown up largely independent, like he did, he didn't think to bring anyone with him, like, perhaps, Willem, or Simon, or... Uh, even, uh, what's his name? Uh, Monette. Or, what is it? Mo not Monette. M Monette. Mo Monette. Monette. That's what it is. Monette. <sighs> yeah, Monette. <sighs> anyway. Okay, let's get back into it. Just don't never ever ever trust anyone especially anyone that you've insulted if they say it'll be our little secret you just you know they're trying to get you into trouble i took the candle more than a little surprised apparently i had frightened him with my idle threat earlier either that or this rude pompous noble son wasn't half the bastard i'd taken him for no he's he's double the bastard you'd taken him for ambrose hurried me into the stacks as quickly as possible leaving me no time to light my candle when the doors swung shut behind me, it was as black as the inside of a sack, with only a faint hint of reddish sympathy light coming around the edges of the door behind me. As I didn't have any matches with me, I had to resort to sympathy. Ordinarily, I could have done it quick as blinking, but my Nalrut-weary mind could barely muster the necessary concentration. I gritted my teeth, fixed the alarm in my mind, 
and after a few seconds I felt the cold leach into my muscles as I drew enough heat from my own body to bring the wick of the candle sputtering to life. Books. With no windows to let in the sunlight, the stacks were utterly dark except for the gentle light of my candle. Stretching away into the darkness were shelf on shelf of books, more books than I could uh, look at if I took a whole day, more books than I could read in a lifetime. The air was cool and dry. It smelled of old leather, parchment, and forgotten secrets. I wondered idly at how they kept the air so fresh in a building with no windows. Cupping a hand in front of my candle, I made my flickering way through the shelves, savoring the moment, soaking everything in. Shadows danced wildly back and forth across the ceiling as my candle's flame moved from side to side. The Nalarut had worn off completely by this point. My back was throbbing and my thoughts were leaden, as if I had a high fever or had taken a hard blow to the back of the head. I knew I wasn't going to be up for a long bout of reading, but I still couldn't bring myself to leave so soon, not after everything I'd gone through to get here. I wandered aimlessly for perhaps a quarter hour exploring. I discovered several small stone rooms with heavy wooden doors and tables inside. They were obviously meant as a place where small groups could meet and talk without disturbing the perfect quiet of the archives. I found stairwells leading down as well as up. The archives was six stories tall, but I hadn't known it extended underground as well. How deep did it go? How many tens of thousands of books were waiting under my feet? I can hardly describe how comforting it was in the cool, quiet, dark. I was perfectly content, lost among the endless books. It made me feel safe, knowing that the answers to all my questions were here, somewhere, somewhere waiting. It was quite by accident that I found the four-plate door. It was a. It was made of a solid piece of gray stone, the same color as the surrounding walls. Its frame was eight inches wide, also gray, and also one single seamless piece of stone. The door and frame fit together so tightly that a pin couldn't slide into the crack. It had no hinges, no handle, no window or sliding panel. Its only features were four hard copper plates. They were set flush with the face of the door, which was flush with the front of the frame, which was flush with the wall surrounding it. You could run your hand from one side of the door to the next and hardly feel the lines of it at all. In spite of these notable lacks, the expanse of gray stone was undoubtedly a door. It simply was. Each copper plate had a hole in its center, and though they were not shaped in the conventional way, they were undoubtedly keyholes. The door sat still as a mountain, quiet and indifferent as a sea on a windless day. This was not a door for opening. It was a door for staying closed. In its center, between the untarnished copper plates, a word was chiseled deep into the stone. Valeritas. And I would like to note that Valeritas is embossed into the cover of the book. At least this hardback um, 10th anniversary edition. There were other locked doors in the university, places where dangerous things were kept, where old and forgotten secrets slept, silent and hidden. Doors whose opening was forbidden, doors whose thresholds no one crossed, whose keys had been destroyed or lost, or locked away themselves for safety's sake. But they all paled in comparison to the four-plate door. I lay my palm on the cool, smooth surface of the door, and pushed, hoping against hope that it might swing open to my touch. But it was solid and unmoving as a greystone. 
I tried to peer through the holes in the copper plates, but couldn't see anything by the light of my single candle. I wanted to get inside so badly I could taste it. It probably shows a perverse element of my personality that even though I was finally inside the archives, surrounded by the endless secrets, that I was drawn to the one locked door I had found. Perhaps it is human nature to seek out hidden things. Perhaps it is simply my nature. Then I saw the red, unwavering light of a sympathy lamp approaching through the shelves. It was the first sign I'd seen of any other student in the archives. Sorry. Uh, I took a step back and waited, thinking to ask whoever was coming uh, what was behind the door, what Valeritas meant. The red light swelled, and I saw two scrivs turn a corner. They paused, then one of them bolted to where I stood and snatched my candle away, spilling hot wax on my hand in the process of extinguishing it. His expression couldn't have been more horrified if he had found me carrying a freshly severed head. "'What are you doing with an open flame in here?' he demanded, the loudest whisper I had ever heard. He lowered his voice and waved the now-extinguished candle at me. "'Charred body of God, what's the matter with you?' I rubbed at the hot wax on the back of my hand trying to think clearly through the fog of pain and exhaustion. Of course, I thought, remembering Ambrose's smile as he pressed the candle into my hands and hurried me through the door. Our little secret. Of course I should have known. One of the scrivs led me out of the stacks, while the other ran to fetch Master Loren. When we emerged into the entryway, Ambrose managed to look confused and shocked. He overacted the part, but it was convincing enough for the scrivs accompanying me. What's he doing in here? We found him wandering around, the, the scriv explained, with a candle. What? Ambrose's expression was perfectly aghast. Well, I didn't sign him in. He flipped open one of the ledger's books. Look, see for yourself. Before anything could be said, Lawrence stormed into the room. His normally placid expression was fierce and hard. I felt myself sweat cold, and I thought of what Tekum wrote in his Theophany. There are three things all wise men fear. The sea in a storm, a night with no moon, and the anger of a gentle man. Lauren towered over the entry desk. Explain, he demanded of a nearby scriv. Uh, of the nearby scriv. His voice was a tight coil of fury. Micah and I saw a flickering light in the stacks, and we went to see if someone was having trouble with their lamp. We found him near the southeast stairwell with this. The scriv held up the candle. His hand shook slightly under Lauren's glare. Lauren turned to the desk where Ambrose sat. How did this happen, Rillar? Ambrose raised his hand helplessly. He came in early and, uh, earlier, and I wouldn't um, admit him because he wasn't in the book. We bickered for a while. Fela was here for most of it, he looked at me. Eventually I told him he'd have to leave. He must have snuck in when I went into the back room for more ink. Ambrose shrugged. Or maybe he slipped past the desk in the tomes. I stood there, stupefied. What little part of my mind wasn't leaden with fatigue was preoccupied with the screaming pain across my back. That, that's not true, I looked up at Lorne. He let me in. He sent Fela away, then he let me in. What? Ambrose gaped at me, momentarily speechless. For all that I didn't like him, I must give him credit for a masterful performance. Why in God's name would I do that? Because I embarrassed you in front of Fela. Or Fela, I should say. Uh, I said, he sold me the candle, too. I shook my head trying to, I shook my head trying to clear. 
Oh, wow, okay, there's just a little bit of redundancy in the sentence. I shook my head, trying to clear my head. No, he, he gave it to me. Ambrose, uh, Ambrose's expression was amazed. Look at him, he laughed. The little cocker is drunk or something. I was just whipped, I protested. My voice sounded shrill in my own ears. Enough, Lauren shouted, looming over us like a pillar of anger. The screws went pale at the sound of him. Lauren turned away from me and made a brief contemptuous gesture toward the desk. Rilar Ambrose is officially remanded for laxity in his duty. What? Ambrose's indignant tone wasn't feigned this time. Lauren frowned at him, and Ambrose closed his mouth. Turning to me, he said, Ilir Kivoth is banned from the archives. He made a sweeping gesture with, a f with the flat of his hand. I tried to think of something I could say in my defense. Master, I, I didn't mean... Lauren rounded on me. His expression, always so calm before, was filled with such a cold, terrible anger that I took a step away from him without meaning to. You mean, he said, I care nothing for your intentions, Ilir Kavoth, deceived or otherwise. All that matters is the reality of your actions. Your hand held the fire. Yours is the blame. That is the lesson all adults must learn. I looked down at my feet, tried desperately to think of something I could say, some proof I could offer. My leaden thoughts were still plodding along when Lauren strode out of the room. I don't see why I should be punished for his stupidity. Ambrose groused to the other scribes as I made my way numbly to the door. I made the mistake of turning around and looking at him. His expression was serious, carefully controlled, but his eyes were vastly amused, full of laughter. Honestly, boy, he said to me, I don't know what you were thinking. You'd think a member of the Arcanum would have, would have more sense. Seriously. Oh, my God. Fucking hell, both Ask someone for help. My oh, but he was so excited that he just rushed in there without thinking. See, okay, this, this is why young people are not taken seriously because they don't think to ask the questions they should ask of the people they should be asking. And, goddamn, just... And, and a little patience. A little fucking patience. You waited three years, Kvothe. You're not gonna die today, so wait a day or two. You'll be able to read more, just like you want. And just... Things will be all around better. But we were all 15 once, so I, I understand. <sighs> Still fucking dumb. Oh, and my bookmark is deteriorating. Oh, there's like a plastic film over the top of it. Weird. Could have, as soon as Fellow was sent away, Kvothe should have been like, okay, I'll come back later when someone I can trust will let me in. I'm going to need a new bookmark. This one, in case you're wondering, says, everything is better with bacon. And for the most part, I, I agree with that sentiment. Okay. 
Well, Kaboth has now been banned from the archives. I made my way to the mess. The wheels of my thoughts turning slowly as I plodded along, I fumbled my meal chit into one of the dull tin trays and collected a portion of steamed pudding, a sausage, and some of the ever-present beans. I looked dully around the room until I spotted Simon and Monette. Sorry, Monette. Monet. That name is just... There should be an H in there or something. Monet. Sitting in their usual place at the northeast corner of the hall. I drew a fair amount of attention as I walked to the table, understandable, as it was scarcely two hours since I'd been tied to the pennant pole and publicly lashed. I heard someone whisper, didn't bleed when they whipped him. I was there, not one drop. It was the Nalrot, of course. Uh, it had kept me from bleeding. I had seen. It had seemed like such a good idea at the time. Now it seemed pretty... Uh, petty and foolish. Ambrose would never have managed to gull me so easily if my naturally suspicious nature hadn't been fuddled. I'm sure I would have found some way to explain things to Lauren if I had had my wits about me. As I made my way to the far corner of the room, I realized the truth. I had traded away my access to the archives in exchange for a little notoriety. Still, there was nothing to do but make the best of it. If a bit of reputation was all I had to show for this debacle, I'd have to do my best to build on it. I kept my shoulders straight and made my way across the room to Simon. And Matt, uh, God, it's spelled M-A-N-E-T, okay? It should, like, it, it looks to me like it should be Manet or Mainet. And it is pronounced, the A is pronounced like, like, ah, like the word rot, ah. So, Monet. I, I don't like that. It should have like a like an accent over it, or a or an H M A H N A N E T, like like something like that. Monet. Anyway, whatever. Went across the room to Simon and Monet and set down my food. There's no such thing as a stack fee, is there? I asked quietly as I slid into my seat, trying not to grimace as the pain uh, at the pain across my back. Sim looked at me blankly. Stack fee? Monet chortled into his bowl of beans. It's been a few years since I heard that. Back when I worked as a scriv, we'd trick the first-timers into giving us a penny to use the archives. Called it a stack fee. Sim gave him a disapproving look. That's horrible. Monet held up his hands defensively in front of his face. Just a little harmless fun. Monet looked me over. Is that what your long face is for? Somebody call you for a copper? I shook my head. I wasn't going to announce that Ambrose had tricked me out of a whole talent. Guess who just got banned from the archives, I said gravely as I tore the crust off of my bread and dropped it into my beans. They looked at me blankly. After a, simon, after a moment, Simon took the obvious guess. Um, you? I nodded and began to spoon up my beans. I wasn't really hungry, but I hoped a little food in my stomach might help shake off the sluggishness of the null root. Besides, it went against my nature to pass up an opportunity for a meal. You got suspended on your first day, Simon said. That's going to make studying your Chandrian folklore a whole lot harder. I sighed. You could say that. How long did he suspend you for? He said banned, I answered. He didn't mention a time limit. Banned? Let's see, banned? Monet looked up at me. He hasn't banned anyone in a dozen years. What did you do? Piss on a book? Some of the scribs found me inside with a candle. 
Sorry. I accidentally ran a little in my head. Uh, some of the scribes found me inside with a candle. Merciful Telu, Monet, um, to lay down his fork, his expression serious for the uh, for the first time. Old Lore must have been furious. Furious is exactly the right word, I said. What possessed you to go in there with an open flame? Simon asked. I couldn't afford a hand lamp, I said, so the scriv at the desk gave me a candle instead. He didn't. No scriv would. Hold on, Monat said. Was this a dark-haired fellow, well-dressed, severe eyebrows? He made an exaggerated scowl. I nodded tiredly. Ambrose, we met yesterday. Got off on the wrong foot. He's hard to avoid, Monat said carefully, with a significant look to the people sitting around us. I noticed more than a few were casually listening to our conversation. Someone should have warned you to keep clear of him. He added in a softer voice, God's mother, Simmons said, of all the people you don't want to start a pissing contest with. Well, it's been started, I said. I was starting to feel a little more like myself again, a little less cotton-headed and weary. Either the side effects of the null root were fading, or my anger was slowly burning away the haze of exhaustion. He'll find out I can piss along with the best of them. He'll wish he never met me, let alone meddled with my affairs. Simon looked a little nervous. You really shouldn't threaten other students, he said with a little laugh, as if trying to pass my comment off as a joke. More softly, he said, you don't understand. Ambrose is heir to a barony off in Vintus. He hesitated, looking to Monette. Mo Monette, goddamn. Monette. I, th I, th I hate that. I fucking hate the way that is spelled. Okay, sorry. Lord, how do I even start? Monette leaned forward and spoke in a more in more confidential tones as well. He's not one of those nobility who dabble here for a term or two, then leave. He's been here for years, climbed his way up to Rilar. He's not some seventh son either. He's the firstborn heir, and his father is one of the twelve most powerful men in all of Vintus. Actually, he's sixteenth in the peerage, Sim said matter-of-factly. You've got the royal family, the prince regents, Mayor Alvaron, Duchess Samistra, um, Achilleos, and Meluan Lackless. He trailed off under Monette's glare. He has money, Monette said simply, and the friends that money buys, and the people who want to curry favor with his father, Simon added. The point is, Monette said seriously, you don't want to cross him. Back in his first year here, one of the alchemists got on Ambrose's bad side. Ambrose bought his debt from the moneylender in Imre. When the fellow couldn't pay, they clapped him into debtor's prison. Monette tore a piece of bread in half and daubed butter onto it. By the time his family got him out, he had lung consumption. The fellow was a wreck, never came back to his studies. And the masters just let this happen? I demanded. All perfectly legal, Monette said, keeping his voice low. Uh, still keeping his voice low. Even so, Ambrose wasn't so silly that he bought the fellow's debt himself. Monette made a dismissive gesture. He had someone else do that, but he made sure everyone knew he was responsible. And there was Tabitha, Sim said darkly. She made all that noise about how Ambrose had promised to marry her. She just disappeared. This certainly explained why Fela had been so hesitant to offend him. I made a placating gesture to Sim. I'm not threatening anyone, I said innocently, pitching my voice so anyone who was listening could easily hear. I'm just quoting one of my favorite pieces of literature. It's from the fourth act of Deonica, where Tarsus says, Upon him I will visit famine and a fire, till all around him desolation rings, and all the demons in the outer dark look on amazed and recognize that vengeance is the business of a man. 
there was a moment of stunned silence nearby. It spread a bit further through the mess than I had expected. Apparently I had underestimated the number of people who were listening. I turned my attention back to my meal and decided to let it go for now. I was tired and I hurt, and I didn't particularly want any more trouble today. You won't need this piece of information for a while, Monette said, quietly, after a long period of silence. What with being banned from the archives and all. Still, I'm supposing I'm supposing you'd rather know. He cleared his throat uncomfortably. You don't have to buy a hand lamp. You just sign them out at the desk and return them when you're done. He looked at me as if anxious about the, what sort of reaction the information might provoke. I nodded wearily. I'd been right before. Ambrose wasn't half the bastard I thought he was. He was ten times the bastard. And you, Kvothe, are ten times the fucking idiot. God damn it. Ask for help, everybody. Ask for help. Ask someone who's a friend, or who's at least kind, that you haven't literally just pissed on. Okay, not literally, but just li you literally just embarrassed him in front of a very pretty woman that he was trying unsuccessfully to woo, but pressuring her anyway with his reputation. Never kick someone especially kicking them in the reputation and their pride that was the real that was the real one kicked him in his pride and then trust them never ever never ever ever do that never kick someone's pride and then trust them to help you honestly especially someone who's willing to hold down a woman and be a little rapey, giving off rapey vibes. That's not... Yeah, anyone who's going to force themselves on a woman is not someone who you can trust. There's somebody who should be dealt with. But not someone to be trusted. Or someone for dealings. You should not have dealings with people like that. So come back on a different day when he's not there. Come back with a friend so that you know that so someone who's been around there before, who knows the procedures, so that you don't get taken for a fucking fool and get into trouble. Uh, well, he's not an idiot. He's not stupid. He's just naive. And very little is more dangerous than a naive, smart person. They get themselves into far more trouble than stupid, naive people. They're much more imaginative about the trouble they get into. Anyway. Don't be like Kvothe in this chapter. First, if you've just been wounded or had surgery or, you know, in any way you're not thinking clearly, do not go do anything new. Go home, relax, recuperate. Then, when you have your wits about you and all, then go do the thing. And... 
go with someone you trust, especially if money gets involved. Go with someone you trust who's been around the block and knows what things are worth. both certainly learned a few hard lessons, but not the right ones. He should have learned to take someone with him, and yet he does not learn that lesson. So I guess there's still time for character development, which is good, because we've still got like half the book. Uh, just over. Just over half, I think. Anyway. Learn the lesson well, my friends. Ask for help. Everybody's a fool once. Everybody needs to learn the ways of things. Ask someone beforehand. Ask the master. Ask Master Lauren. Hey, what are the procedures in the stacks? What are the rules? I don't want to break any rules. He just wanders in blindly without learning the rules first. That's Kvothe's issue. He, he does things with no regard for the rules. And no regard for learning the rules first. Sometimes there's a place for that. A library is not one of them. Uh, well, my friends, don't be a fucking idiot. Good night.